Oh my goodness, I am so grateful. Both Dana and I have been so grateful and honored to be able to serve Peace Church this weekend. Uh, we love you. We really love you. And uh, it's been a privilege to open up God's word all weekend long with you and this morning as well. I want you to hear, uh, maybe from an outside perspective, from another pastor, just how much love and respect that I have for your pastors, Peace Church. I am confident the Lord is doing a work outside of their efforts in your midst. But I just want you to know that you have an embarrassment of riches here this morning. Pastor Nate, Pastor Travis, they work hard to, to shepherd you faithfully, to nourish you. In fact, if you see Pastor Travis at any point in the future, whether you were a part of the marriage conference or not, you need to thank him for the hard work that he's done to sow seeds of flourishing in this community. So, yeah, you, can, you should. You should applaud. And, um, and that's not all. Pastor John and I went to college together. He stood up in my wedding. We've known each other for more than 10 years, and that jerk looks the same today as he did 10 years ago. So I love that man. I know that uh, if anything ever goes sideways in my life, he is somebody I'm going to call because he will uh, love me well and lead me to Jesus. And Pastor Ryan, you need to hear from me. I trust this man. I trust him so much. I want his advice. I want his wisdom. He has listened to me and given me that advice and wisdom on many an occasion. In fact, he was the one who sat across his desk from me and said, you and Dana need to pray about church planting. And it was then when we started to really take this call seriously and the Lord then confirmed it. I'm so excited for what God has for your future, Peace Church. And when Pastor Ryan comes up here with his cowboy boots and says, I'm Ryan, the lead pastor at Peace Church, I, I just makes my heart happy. He's going to love you and lead you so well. It makes me so happy and excited for you. My wife Dana and I, we do have a lot of history here at Peace. Like Ryan said, we came in 2013, started the same summer as him, um, but my wife and I were just babies. Uh, we had been married for two years, and during our six years here at Peace Church, we uh, became like real live grown-ups. We had three kids. We bought our first home. I finished seminary, and so uh, because of that and because the community of this church just came around us and became our people and poured into us. Um, you have a special place in our hearts. So um, you can be praying for us. You guys affirmed us, and I got to share just a few minutes earlier about our church plant. We're planting in Brighton, Michigan. It's an area where if you break down the numbers, uh, there's probably 11% of the population that attend a, a Bible-preaching church like Peace Church out of 190,000 people. So it's an area of great need, even though it feels like uh, and, and you wouldn't guess that as you drive through. So many people don't know Jesus. And so we're pressing in and praying and we're, we covet your prayers, trying to figure out how to start a church in this crazy world right now. And uh, we are so grateful for the gospel partnership that many of you have, have done by partnering with us through prayer and giving financially. Um, we're so privileged to have gospel partners like Peace Church. So thank you. Uh, and then right, one more uh, thing I want to say before we dive into the sermon, just real quick. Um, because the world is the way it is, uh, and because Dana and I have family members who are high risk, um, I'm going to be wearing a mask off the stage and just 
fist bumping, and that's it. And I hate it. I want to hug all of you. I really hate it. Um, but I'm going to joyfully lay aside my preference to protect the vulnerable people I love. So thank you for understanding that. So I should start preaching. Is that okay with you? Let's look to the book. Um, if, we, if you've been at the marriage conference this weekend, you know that we've been in the book of Ephesians, and that's where you can turn. We've been going through the book of Ephesians because Ephesians 5 is like the marriage passage for Christians, and it tells us that our union with our spouse is, is not uh, the ultimate goal of marriage, that the ultimate goal of marriage is to show off a better and more beautiful union, and that's the union between Christ and his church. And so what we've done this weekend is we've taken the rest of the book of Ephesians and tried to marinate in what exactly this relationship between Christ and his church looks like. Ephesians has a lot to say about that. And so when we made our plan originally, this, was gonna, this message was going to be given at a retreat center and it was going to be the, the crowning message of the whole retreat weekend and it was going to be Ephesians 6 and the armor of God in your marriage. And so when we pivoted to this morning, the great thing is all we got to do is take out the marriage part and it still applies to everybody here, whether you've been to the marriage conference or not. So we're going to talk about Ephesians 6 and the armor of God this morning, but because it's the end of the book of Ephesians, I want to catch you up on what Paul said. The book of Ephesians can be divided really naturally into two parts. So the first part of the book of Ephesians is who we are in Christ. And the second part is how we live in Christ. So the first three chapters in the book, Paul's showing us how we're a new people. That we're a new people because we've been united to Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus, when you were saved, Jesus Christ united himself to you. You became one with Christ. And as a result of that union, all of his benefits automatically become your benefits. His sinless life becomes your sinless life. His victory over sin and death becomes yours. His status as a son of the Father becomes yours. That, that is union with Christ. And because we have union with Christ and that vertical relationship is healed, we who were once enemies of God and full of tension with each other now have peace not only with God but with each other. Ephesians 2 has this great little verse that says, He himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. Because God isn't just about saving individual people. He's about building a new people group called the church. And through the church, Ephesians says, He's manifesting his glorious presence to the rest of the world. So that's where we are, or that's who we are in Christ, rather. We are a new community of people saved because we've been united to Jesus. That's Ephesians 1 through 3. And then Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul teaches us how we live in Christ. How is this new community that God is building supposed to go about daily life in light of who we are because of the gospel? Because, friends, the gospel changes everything. It changes every part of our lives, and, and every part of our lives has to be transformed because of this new identity that we've received. So, so he's telling us in Ephesians 4 through 6 how to approach every part of life differently because we are new people in Christ. And as Paul's landing the plane on the book of Ephesians, he's going to teach us two things in Ephesians 6. The first thing he's going to teach us is that we have a very real enemy. 
He's going to say, as you seek to live in light of who you are in Christ by doing all these things I've written to you about, like, like uh, fighting for unity in the church, putting away sin, walking in love, embracing a different sexual ethic than the rest of the world, submitting to your husband, loving your wife, honoring your parents, working as unto the Lord. As you do all these things, not only do you have to deal with your own sinful heart that's prone to wander... And not only do you have to seek to obey in the midst of a world that's fallen and broken by sin, but you also have an enemy that comes against you as you strive to live as God's new people. So that's the first thing he's going to teach us, that we have an enemy. And the second thing he's going to teach us is how to fight that battle. So that's how we're going to divide the message today. We're going to ask two questions. Who is our enemy and how do we fight? Who is our enemy and how do we fight? Uh, and before I talk anymore, let's open up the book and let God speak to us first. So why don't we stand together in honor of reading God's word? And I'm going to read it here. I left my Bible somewhere else, but I've got it printed right here. And before I read, let's pray. Father, we are dependent on you to send your Holy Spirit to strengthen us with, our, with your mighty power so that we might have strength to comprehend together the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And as we open up your word, Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would impress upon us the reality that your word is living and active and that you're speaking to us now. And I ask that you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive with joy and to respond with obedience and worship. And Lord, I pray for myself. I'm weak to preach your word on any day. And I do feel weak in my voice today. So I pray that you would sustain me. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read God's word. Ephesians 6, 10 through, 10 through 20 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So the first question we need to ask as we come to this passage is who is our enemy? You know, in our world, there are so many problems. We could make a long, long list together of all the problems in the world. 
And when I listen to people try to process and understand just why exactly is the world so messy, I hear a lot of talk about psychology and I hear a lot of talk about biology and sociology, but I hear much less talk about spirituality. And, and, and I think, you know, if, if we were to imagine together like some person coming up on, on Fox News or CNN and, and saying the reason that this really bad thing happens in the world is because there's an unseen spiritual war that's happening beneath, beneath the surface. Like that wouldn't go over. That person would be like dismissed as unhinged, right? Crazy person. And yet the Bible won't let us get away from the fact that the problems of the world have a spiritual component to them alongside biological, psychological components. Scripture's teaching us that we have an enemy, that he's a fallen angel that we call Satan, which means the adversary. And in this passage that we just read, he's called the devil, which means the accuser. He is wicked and powerful and cunning, and he hates God, and he hates what God loves, which means he hates all of creation. And he's scheming against God's people. And he, along with the, his armies of evil, are wrestling and grappling with the church. Now, when we begin to talk about spiritual warfare, I think there are two errors that we could make, at least two errors. And the first error is to deny that spiritual warfare even exists. You know, maybe you hear me talking, you think, I sound like a crazy person. Uh, maybe you don't believe in the reality of a spiritual realm. Maybe you just look around the world and see, and see matter and think that's all that there is. We're just matter floating in space. Um, I don't think that is many of us, even outside the church. I don't think many people just totally dismiss the reality of a spiritual realm. But if that is you today, if you're listening to me and you don't believe in the spiritual realm, I just have a couple questions for you. Um, I wonder if we might not be the product of growing up in a Western world that has built for us a plausibility structure, meaning without even knowing, we've built this, this um, way of understanding the world into our minds that would keep us from seeing the truth. And might we be like the fish who asks, what's water? Like we've been swimming in it for so long, this way that we've learned to understand the world that we don't even see it. And so would it be worth considering that this idea that, that the world is just physical matter and nothing else has only existed for maybe the last few hundred years and has only existed in one corner of the world? So most of the world, for most of history, has seen evidence and thought it was obvious that there is a spiritual realm. That's worth considering, I think. And if you're in that place where you, you don't believe in the spiritual realm, then I just would wonder, how do you answer for the fact that our streets still run with blood if we're so advanced? Like biology, sociology, psychology, can they really account for all of this? Those are just questions that I have for you, no pressure. But if you're in the other group, and I think most of us are, um, I think that there's a different error that we can fall into, and th this error is that we sensationalize the enemy and we misjudge the battle. We sensationalize the enemy and we misjudge the battle. So when I was a kid, I remember pretty vividly 
preparing for the day when robbers were going to show up outside my window and invade my home. And man, was I ready for them. I had my toy gun. I had my wooden sword. I had my pocket knife. Shoot, I even had a baseball bat. And I was like, bring it on. Let's go. I'm ready to fight the robbers. Was I the only one who ever did that? Yeah, okay. All right, all right. You're ready. You're ready. We were both ready. But you know, as I look back to nine-year-old Ethan prepping for the robbers in his room, do you know how foolish that was? Like, I'm sorry. If you're a nine-year-old and you're fighting a robber, you're losing that fight. You're dying no matter what. And I know some of you hear that and you're like, well, not if you teach that kid how to use a firearm properly. But hey, don't worry. I'm coming for you later. So just hold that in your pocket. No, it's, it's silly. But you know what nine-year-old Ethan was doing? I wanted to fight a grown man's battle because I was picturing some sort of Macaulay Culkin home alone type of situation. But I was fabricating and sensationalizing the enemy and I was underestimating the fight. I didn't have a clear picture of reality. And we do this so often with spiritual warfare. We sensationalize the enemy. We think of the devil and picture some man in, in red tights that's kind of perched on our shoulder. He's kind of evil, but he's also kind of funny. Or we let Hollywood kind of shape the way that we think about demons and spiritual attacks. So if it's not crawling up a wall or have its head spinning around and around in circles, then it must not be demonic. But we need to stop sensationalizing the enemy, friends. We need to look at him with sober-mindedness. Satan's craftier than the simple images that our world wants to, wants to paint of him. The Bible says he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Church, he's hunting you. Our passage says he schemes against us. That, that word is where we, the Greek word is where we get our word for methods. He has methods on how he's going to fight you. He's got books on you that he's following to fight you. And so we sensationalize the enemy, and he is much more vicious and sneaky than the world makes him out to be. And the other thing we do inside this same era, we sensationalize our enemy, and we misjudge the battle. Because as a kid, I was ready to fight those robbers. I was so eager to fight like a grown-up. But I had no idea that the kind of battles that I would fight as a man have less to do with swinging my fists and more to do with choosing to be faithful to my wife or, or choosing to be working hard instead of embracing laziness. I had no idea the kind of battles that grown men really fight. And we do this with spiritual warfare too. We look at the things going on in the world around us and we see Satan at work in the shiny things that distract us like coronavirus and executive orders or the movements of nations or Hollywood-influenced visions of demonic activity. And listen, the enemy very well may be leveraging the situations going on in the broader world to, to work according to his purposes. But friends, I don't think that those are the battles that we're, most of us are called to. We so easily limit spiritual warfare to these huge cultural battles, but we don't anticipate the fight in the daily humdrum fight to use our time wisely or to set aside selfishness or to work hard or to cultivate a love for the scriptures or spend time in prayer or use our words to build others up rather than tearing them down. 
but there is a spiritual battle going on. There's a spiritual battle going on when we gorge ourselves on entertainment or screen time or pornography or food. And when we sacrifice money and effort and time for the sake of academic achievement or athletic commitments or that house on the lake, but we treat church as optional and we farm out discipleship to the youth pastor or only do it when we have time to do it, that is a spiritual battle. When we train ourselves little by little with sarcastic comments and passive-aggressive Facebook posts to look down on other image bearers of God simply because they see the world in a different way than you do, that's a spiritual battle going on in your own heart. This is the real fight. And while we are distracted by whether or not the mainstream media is a mouthpiece for the enemy or our friend on Facebook is demonically influenced because they voted differently for us, the enemy and his forces are skipping through the background of our life, sowing seeds of destruction in the mundane things. There is a battle going on. And friends, how do you presume to fight? With what strength will you fight him? He is millions of times stronger than you. And he hates you, and he hates your family, and he hates your church. He wants to destroy you. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to eat you alive. How will you fight him? You are not strong enough. You are not. Well, the answer is not to try harder. The answer isn't go, to go home and try to muster up some sort of spiritual strength. When I heard this, this passage on the armor of God taught as a child, I, I didn't understand how to put on the armor of God. I thought, do I have to memorize these verses and just kind of speak them out? I claim the helmet of salvation. I take up the this, 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 this shield of faith. Uh, but no. Christianity is not witchcraft. We don't have to say the right words in just the right way in order to receive power. That's not how we fight the fight. That's not how we put on the armor. So how do we fight in this spiritual battle? How do we fight against this enemy he schemes against us? Well, we have to look and see that Paul is teaching us to put on somebody else's armor. Look at, look at your Bible. Look at verse 11 or verse 13. Really do it. Let me see your heads go down. Verse 11 or verse 13. I'm going to ask you to answer me. Whose armor are we to put on? Yeah, it's like Sunday school. God. <laughs> we are called to put on God's armor. It's God's armor. All throughout the Old Testament, it paints this picture of God as a mighty warrior. And let me just read a few passages from the Old Testament and see if you hear echoes of these passages in the, in the Ephesians passage that we just read. So, Exodus 15, the Lord is a warrior, Yahweh is his name. Isaiah 42, the Lord advances like a warrior. He stirs up zeal like a soldier. He shouts, he roars aloud, he prevails over his enemies. Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald. This is talking about the Messiah. 
The herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen to this prophecy about God's Messiah. Righteousness will be a belt around his loins. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Isaiah 59 says, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah 49, he made my words, the Messiah's words, he made them like a sharp sword. He hides me in the shadow of his hand. So Paul is pulling from all of this Old Testament imagery as he describes this armor that we're supposed to put on. So if God is the warrior who wears the armor, and if Paul's telling us and calling us to put on the armor of God, then what exactly are we supposed to do? Well, let's do a little bit more Bible study. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans 13, let me read another passage to you. Romans 13, starting in verse 12, says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So until I prepared for this sermon, I didn't even know there was another verse in the Bible that told us to put armor on. This is cool. Put on the armor of light. Then it says in verse 13, Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, put on the armor of light. How do you do that? You put on Jesus. Paul loves to tell us to put on Christ. He loves to tell us to put on the new self that Christ has bought for us. He does it in Romans 13. He does it a little bit earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. He does it in in Colossians. Put on Christ, our armor. And how do we put on Christ? Friends, we put on Christ by submitting ourselves to him, by crying out to him, how must I be saved? Will you save me, Jesus? I submit to you as my Lord and my Savior and my King, and I want you to redefine every aspect of my life so that I might say goodbye to slavery, to myself and to my sin and to death and embrace this new life that you offer me. That it, that's what it means to put on Christ. Christ is our armor. Christ is the belt of truth. He's the way and the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. Christ is the breastplate of righteousness because he himself is our righteousness. Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Christ himself is our peace. Take up the shield of faith. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. Jesus alone brings us salvation. Wield the sword of the Spirit. Jesus is the Messiah who wielded God's word and defeated the enemy. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have not been given a list of behaviors to check off. You have been given a position, a new identity. You have been brought from death to life, and this is something that has just changed fundamentally about you. If you're in Christ, you are clothed in the armor of Christ, and no schemes of the enemy will lead to your eternal death. And this is why a follower of Jesus like Paul can throughout the New Testament just be so unflappable and resilient in the face of whatever is thrown against him. So you want to you wanna throw me in jail? That's okay. 
You want to beat me nearly to death? That's fine. Everything for the glory of God. To live is Christ, to die is gain. You want to kill me? That's okay. The glory of God. You cannot destroy me eternally because I am clothed in the armor of Christ. And so our position as united with Jesus must lead, always leads to transformation in our life. I don't know about you, but I am hungry for transformation in my own life and in the lives of the people I love and the people who surround me. That's why we're planting Union Church. We want to see the gospel transform the lives of people. And I believe you're probably hungry for that as well. But we never behave our way into transformation. We never behave our way into belonging for Jesus. We always let our identity in Christ then dictate our change in behavior. We always let our position lead to a new way of living. And this is what the armor of God passage calls us to as well. Because you remember, it's in the second half of the book of Ephesians. It's all about how do we live in light of this new identity we've been given. So Christ is our armor. We put on Christ. We're eternally secure in him. And this should lead to a change and transformation in how we live. So put on the belt of truth, Christian. Be speakers of truth. Love the truth. Don't give the devil a foothold by neglecting to be a person of truth. God's word is truth. Jesus himself is the way and the truth. So come to this word and spend time with Jesus every day. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Don't give an inch to the enemy in your behavior. Live righteously. Reject lust. Reject impurity. Reject greed and injustice. Be people of integrity. Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Be ready to share the gospel whenever you have the opportunity. Take it to new places. Take it to hard places. Take up the shield of faith. Friends, cling to Jesus and have that same attitude that Paul has that no matter what fiery darts the enemy slings against you, you can be inflappable and resilient. What if the church was a non-anxious presence in the world because of the security we have in the gospel? Oh, the world is so hungry for people who are not anxious about what's blowing up around us. If we might be a fearless people because we have a secure faith and that whatever the enemy throws against us, whatever persecution, whatever hardship, whatever's ahead, would just, we would just be, be like, bring it on. This is what we were made for as the people of God. What if we were that kind of people? Put on the helmet of salvation. Friends, know that your salvation has been bought and paid for and there's no return policy. If you're in Christ, you're with him forever. And wield the sword of the spirit. Wield God's word, friends. It's interesting the, the word choice that Paul uses when he writes this sentence. He could have used the Greek word that means the written word, but instead he uses the Greek word that means the spoken word. So be wielders of God's word, scripture, and I think the core message of every part of scripture is the good news of the gospel, and your offensive weapon against our enemy 
is to speak the gospel wherever you go. Be wielders of God's word. And then Paul ends his charge to us in verse 18 by urging us to pray. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications, it's another word for prayer, making supplications for all the saints and also for me. And then he goes on to list out some personal prayer requests that he has for himself. So friends, as we seek to live with our lives in alignment with the new identity that Christ has given us, speaking truth and living righteously and sharing the gospel, all of it has to be marinated and bathed in prayer. Prayer has to fill up every empty corner of our life. Because prayer is how we join God in the work that he is doing in the world. Prayer is how we get the work done. There is something, it's a mystery. I don't understand it, and yet it leads me to worship, and I want you to worship with me. Because somehow in prayer, we get to participate with the work God is doing. And the most clear place that I see that is in Matthew 9, where Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And I read that and I think, Jesus, you are the Lord of the harvest. And you see the field. You know the situation. And you have the authority to send some folks out. So why do I need to pray about it? You got it covered, Lord. You're going to get the work done. And yet he tells us to pray. He invites us into the work. And throughout the New Testament, we hear this again and again, that prayer moves the heart of God, that prayer allows us to participate in the work that God is doing. Prayer is the work that is the greatest work that we can do as God's people. He calls us to prayer. Prayer is the real work of ministry. And if you feel apathetic towards prayer, if you feel like prayer is a struggle for you, if you feel like prayer is just this nice thing that nice Christians do as a part of our nice lives, then this passage is helpful for us because it reminds us that prayer is an act of war. John Piper has this great quote I want to read to you. I love me some Johnny P. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts from the den. Prayer is a wartime effort and we live in a war. So we need to be people of prayer. And Paul says, persevere in prayer and make supplications for all the saints. Because friends, the Christian life is a calling into a new community. And we are called to pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray always interceding for one another. If you have nothing to pray for yourself, I got to believe you know somebody somewhere whose life is blowing up that needs prayer. And if you don't even know that, you, you know that God knows what's going on in the hearts of the person sitting next to you. You can always pray for the saints. And if you don't even know that, you can pray for Union Church. There you go. So as we kind of land the plane on this passage, I have uh, three things I want to do. I want to give you an invitation, a challenge, and an encouragement. And the invitation is the most important thing. 
Because Paul is encouraging us to ready ourselves for the battle by submitting to Jesus and putting on the armor of Christ. And if you've been a part of church for a long time, chances are you've heard this good news of the gospel again and again. It's probably old news to you that that Christ came, he lived a perfect life. He died and took the punishment that you deserve because you offended God with your sin. And with him rising to new life, he's assured us that we can be given new life and eternal life. That's the good news that you need to hear. It may be a good news that you need to respond to for the first time. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to hear that you are being invited into this life. You're being invited into a life of resilience and security. You're being invited into a life that, that uh, exists in this, in this structure of seeing the world that helps to see we, we exist for far more than our own selves. We exist to take part in this cosmic battle that's going on. And we do it as a people who are, are secure in Christ. I just want to invite you to find hope in that. And if you already have found hope in it, find hope in it again. The gospel's for you, Christian, every day, every moment. So that's your invitation. I also have a challenge for us. I am sometimes discouraged by how often that I encounter Christians, and particularly men, who are zealous for their family's physical safety and provision and security, but are totally passive when it comes to the spiritual security of their family or their own lives, and they even invite the enemy in. And so instead of putting on the belt of truth by spending time in the word with yourself or your family, you, you lay it aside. You don't take the time. You care more about living easy than living righteously. You're not ready to share the gospel of peace. You don't stoke the flames of your faith in Jesus. You, give, you don't give much evidence to the people in your life that you are grateful and reliant upon the salvation that Christ offers. You don't wield the gospel message like a weapon against the enemy. You just leave your home wide open to the attack of the enemy. And for some of you, it's even worse. You don't just leave the door open. You invite the enemy in by participating in these demonically influenced schemes of the enemy, like viewing pornography or having some sort of habitual sin that's continually sowing seeds of destruction in your life and in your family's life and in the life of this community and the life of this church. You're inviting the enemy in. Some of you care so much for your family's physical security. You're packing right now. You've got a safe full of guns at home. You've installed the security system. You care so much about their physical provision. But you're like me as a child waiting to fight the battle that's foolish to wait for. It's not the real battle. There's something more important. You need to step up and man up and fight the fight of faith in your homes, men. And sisters too. You got to do it. I love you. That's why I'm being mean. You need to hear it. And if you do feel convicted by the Spirit to step into the fight of faith, I want to give you some practical steps. 
First step you can take, grab your phone and download a Bible app. Any one of them will have a Bible reading program. Most of those programs will take less than 15 minutes a day. Start reading your Bible. It is life for you. Um, Confess your unrighteous living. Friends, we are so tempted to believe the lie that if we keep it hidden, we can stay safe. But that is a lie from the pit of hell. Keeping our sin hidden keeps us enslaved to it. So confess your sin. Bring it out into the light. That's the only place where it has no power. I'm not not promising you that it won't hurt, but you need to do it. It's it's a surgery that leads to, to better healing. Confess to your family. Confess to your spouse. Confess to your community. Confess to your pastors. Friends, you will not surprise them. And they will be joyful that the Spirit is working in your life and convicting you to become more like Christ. Confess your unrighteousness. Another thing you can do, pick a time to pray as an individual and or with your family. Pick a time. Set an alarm on your phone. And you don't have to pray for three hours. You can pray for three minutes or 30 seconds. Pick a time to pray. Zero is what we're trying to move from. And going from zero to one is a win. And the last thing that you can do is prioritize participation in the life of the church. Because you have been called into a battle and anybody who goes into battle on their own is foolish. So you need to intentionally organize your life so that you are constantly rubbing shoulders with your brothers and sisters in arms. You're always feeling them right next to you. They're like a security blanket to you. You're called into a community of faith. So invest yourself a thousand percent into the life of the church and into the community of faith. What would it look like if God's people began to prioritize involvement in the church over your kids' school activities? What if sports became a distant third priority to being discipled in the midst of the body of Christ? We look too much like the world, friends. We look too much like people who don't care a lick about where they're going after they die. We need to prioritize becoming a part of this new community. And we need to take radical steps to do it. Invest yourself in the life of the church. Quit feeding, treating this faith family as optional and, and quit treating it as obligatory. It's not a duty, it's a joy. It's a family. Sometimes family's hard, but it's so worth it. Those are my practical steps for you and I want to end by giving you an encouragement, friends. Did you notice in the passage we get a whole list of the armor of God, but there is no armor for the back. And you want to know why? It's because there will never be a retreat. Our victory has been bought and paid for. We are like soldiers in World War II who signed up after D-Day. Like we're living in the death throes of the enemy. He's still vicious. He still hates us, but he's dying. He's defeated. The war is already won. Everybody knows it. 
and we are eternally secure in him. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So be assured today. Take hope in the gospel. Put on the armor of Christ and get in the fight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have to do the real work now. A good sermon is a nice thing to have, uh, but it does not lead to transformation. Only you bring transformation. So we pray for your help. I pray that you would transform people's hearts into a greater degree of likeness to Christ. I pray for Peace Church and ask that you would guard this place in the midst of the battle going on. I pray that it would be filled with people who care most about their own relationship with you and care most about investing in the community of faith around them and fighting that fight here and now. And I pray that this place would be a shining outpost of the gospel in the middle of a dark world. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gospel that is good news to us. And I pray that you would help us to respond with worship now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's stand and let's worship Jesus together.